Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 2. I think most of you are aware we're continuing a series this morning on the book of Acts that we are calling The Church Unleashed and on Mission. Um, you also may have noticed we gave the choir a day off today. Uh, they work so hard each and every week. It's good for them periodically to come and be able to sit with their family. So choir members, thank you for all your hard work. So, you, But we need you back up there next week. Um, this series that we're going through is designed, as if you're here last week, then you, you, you kind of know what we're talking about. The series is designed to help us to understand what the church is to be doing and how we are to do it. So last week, the challenge, and if you missed last week, please go online and listen to the message because it really is the foundation for everything we're doing going forward. So if you missed that, please listen to that. Everything else we're going through in this study in the book of Acts is going to be building on that. And last week we really said that what God has called us to do as a church is to pursue the mission that he has given us. And Matthew 28 and Mark 16 and Luke 24, John 20, Acts 1, 8, that we are, that he has given us a mission. We have to pursue that mission. So what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is learning how. How do we pursue the mission? What is it that God really wants us to do? How do we live this out? But the message this morning is, is really very foundational to exactly what we're going to be talking about. And you'll see that in just a few minutes. Now, you've heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, and that's true. And we're going to, you'll, you'll see how we tie all this together in a moment. I, one of the things I did for probably about 10, 9, 10 years was I spoke at a youth retreat in Panama City Beach, Florida. Tell you, that was rough. Um, going to the beach, speaking, going to the beach. Um, but I did this for about nine, ten years. And one of the things I always tried to do when I was speaking to teens is use object lessons. And so this particular day, the object lesson was that I had two caramel covered apples. And we got two people to come up and we said, okay, we're going to have a competition to see who can eat the caramel apple the fastest. I mean, I thought about doing this this morning. I mean, I could see, I could see Stanley up here and, and a couple other people. Um, but, but what I did is, and we got them up there, we got two teenage guys came up. Of course, they're all like, I'm going to win this. And, and so we got ready to start. We said, on your mark, get set. Go. And they started just biting as fast as they could into these caramel-covered apples. The problem was, not really a problem, I thought it was hilarious, is that one of them was not a caramel-covered apple, it was a caramel-covered onion. <laughs> and they didn't know that up front. And so and it was not one of those kind of sweet onions. I mean, this is the one brings the tears. And so they, they we say go, and they just start eating into their caramel-covered apples. And then one of them all of a sudden just stops and looks around. is like he didn't know whether this was supposed to be happening or not. But the whole point of that was, it's what's on the inside that matters. I mean, we can all have this same outward look, but be very different on the inside. I mean, wouldn't that have been fun to do this morning? I mean, we, could have had, we could have made this a deacon competition um, with 12 onions. I mean, it would have been great. I'm just kidding. So the reason why I say that is it's not always what we say outwardly. That's reality, right? It's what's in the heart. Um, 
another aspect of this. So you have that illustration. You have don't judge a book by its cover. About five years ago, I was sitting at a Panera Bread with two Mormon missionaries. And they had asked to, I'd ran into them and through a, a, a guy at our church and um, he didn't, wasn't sure what to say. And he asked if I'd be willing to meet with him. So I talked with him and said, yes, I accidentally forgot to tell him I was a pastor. Y- y'all believe that accidentally part, right? And so we sat down and they were kind of asking about my background. I told them I grew up Baptist and had been in Baptist churches and they stopped and interrupted and said, great, we're basically the same as Baptist. We almost believe the same thing as Baptist. And I was like, really? I didn't tell him that I'd been on two mission trips to Salt Lake City, Utah, and had toured the Mormon temple twice. And in those mission trips, had taught on Mormon beliefs. And so I was just kind of interested. I've never heard someone say that Mormons believe the exact same thing or pretty close to the same thing as Baptists. And I said, really? They thought, yeah. And I went through talking about some of the things that we believe. I said, well, we, or they, they said, we believe in the Bible, like you believe in the Bible. We, we go to church like you go to church. And, and we believe that Jesus is God's son the same way you believe Jesus is God's son. And I was like, really? I said, cause, and there's that Jesus is God's son. Cause do we believe Jesus is God's son? Yes. Well, they also say they believe Jesus is God's son. Well, this is what I was reminded of that evening is the importance of defining terms. And so I went through and talked about some of what we believe. I said, we believe that Jesus has always existed. He is eternal. That's in John 1. And we believe that Jesus and God are one. That's in John 10. And we believe that Jesus was present with God in the creation of the world. That's Colossians 1, 15 and 16. We went through a number of different things. I said, so yes, we believe that Jesus is God's son. They're like, great, so do we. I was like, well, I thought you all believed that Jesus was actually birthed from heavenly parents not, not that he's eternal, but that he had a beginning. He was created and that Jesus and Satan are spirit brothers. One chose to do good and one chose to do bad. And they said, yes, but we believe Jesus is God's son and so do you. And I'm thinking, we do not believe the same thing about Jesus being God's son. See, how you define your terms is crucial, right? Well, in this series, we're talking about being on mission. And the reason I say all of those things is it is possible For two churches to both stand up and say, we believe that we need to be on mission and then mean two completely different things by it. So last week we we challenged ourselves to be on mission. And many of you stood up and you came forward and said, we are committed to the mission that God has given us. But what does that mean? I mean, because I'm I'm sure there's people all over the place that that would say, yes, we want to be on mission for Christ. Not just their church, our families and our lives, but it is possible for two different people in the auditorium this morning to stand up and say, we want to be on mission, but have two very different concepts in mind. So what I want to do this morning from Acts chapter 2 is help us understand a little bit more about what this mission means. And really this morning is the foundation Meaning, if, if, if we get this wrong this morning, then we're going to miss so much. Now, I want to begin reading through the first uh, 13 verses. The, the, the main points from the message this morning, morning are going to come from Peter's sermon, starting in verse number 14, really down through verse 40. But there's a couple of doctrinal things that I want to just briefly touch on. Understand, the goal of this is not to look at every single verse and every single phrase. If we did that, this would end up being a six-year series, and I don't think any of us are interested in that. What we want to do is kind of highlight the high points that show, show us and point us to what it means to be a church on mission. Let's start reading, and I'll pause periodically and give a few comments. Verse 1 of chapter 2. 
When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And we're going to see that phrase all together all throughout the book of Acts. The church believed strongly in community and fellowship and being together. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them the ability for speech. Pause here just for a second. Notice that this tongues that came upon them was languages. It was not incoherent babbling. It was a specific language, and that's the pattern that we see. Verse 5. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven, this was a time where all people, all Jews came to Jerusalem. This is a time where people, Jews, those who had converted to Judaism, regardless of where they lived, traveled to, to Jerusalem. And that's why we have all these people of all these different languages gathering together. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused, notice again, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who speak Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? You see language is being stressed. And he goes through in verse 9 and 10 and talks about all the different places that these people were traveling from. Verse 12, they were astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What could this be? But some sneered and said, They are full of new wine. A couple of doctrinal things just to mention, just offer a little clarification on up front. One is the tongues, and I just wanted to stress that that's a language, a known language. But the second thing is, you see that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the believers. There are people, two different groups of people. One group says that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. There is another group of people who say, no, you, you are saved, you give your life to Christ, and then over time, maybe you pray for, but then you receive the Holy Spirit. It's a different occasion, not the same as salvation. Well, what we believe, the Bible teaches, is that when you are saved, you are given the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you look down at chapter 2, verse 38, you'll see kind of this, this order presented. Chapter 2, verse 38 Peter speaking says, repent and be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that it happens at the moment of salvation. This topic of the filling of the Holy Spirit is debated. If you look in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not given to the followers of God permanently, but the Holy Spirit came upon certain people at certain times to accomplish certain tasks. And once that time and that task was completed, the Holy Spirit would leave. That's the Old Testament pattern. That's why people like David would pray to God and say, remove not your spirit from me. The Holy Spirit was not given as a permanent a part of the of the follower of God's lives in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 2 is when all of that changes. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus has been crucified, he is dead, he is risen, he has ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit is now given to all believers at the moment of salvation. Now, some people will say, well, how come... And if you've ever read the book of Acts, maybe you've had this question. How come you see, if we get the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation, how come throughout the book of Acts there seems to be several times where the Spirit is poured out like he was in Pentecost? And, and the answer to that is rooted in chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8. You remember what it says? We looked at it last week. You'll be my witnesses. There's four regions mentioned. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the... 
ends of the earth, four regions mentioned. Every time in the book of Acts that you see that you see the Holy Spirit being poured out in a supernatural way, like in Pentecost in Acts 2, it is signifying the spread of the gospel to a new region, to, to a new one of those four regions mentioned in Acts. So in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is being poured out in Jerusalem. Several chapters later, you see the Holy Spirit being poured out again. It's in the region of Judea, Samaria. Later, you see the Holy Spirit being poured out again, but it's signifying that the gospel gospel is now advancing to the ends of the earth. Every time the, gospel, the Holy Spirit is poured out in the book of Acts, it is signifying the gospel's advance to a new region of the world in line with Acts 1.8. But in a nutshell, so what do we need to know about the Holy Spirit? Well, we could teach 10-week series just on the Holy Spirit, and we may dive into that at some point. But what we need to understand this morning is that you, if you're a believer in Christ, you were given the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. And this is not just a doctrinal truth to know. This is, has implications. You say, what are those implications? If you're a believer this morning, then you understand what we talked about last week, that you do not have the power in and of yourself to accomplish the mission God has given you. But because you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have no excuse. So in your own strength, you cannot accomplish the mission. But because you are a believer and you've been given the Holy Spirit, then you have all the, all the power, all the authority you need. And that truth should bring confidence and boldness to you, to where you are willing to pursue the mission. Not because of what you can do, not because of what you know, and not because of what you think you can accomplish. But because you know you have God's Spirit within you and He has equipped you to do what He has called you to do. One of the things you'll find as we study doctrine is doctrine is very practical. Sometimes people think that doctrine is boring and dull. And usually people who think that think that because it's been presented as such. One of the things I want us to understand is that doctrine is very, very practical and it impacts us. In fact, this fall on Wednesday evenings, we're going to do a study on the practical side of doctrine. And we're going to look at different doctrines and then talk about how is this practical. But this morning, I want us to now focus our attention on Acts 2, starting in verse number 14. This is Peter's sermon. This is Peter's message. He is speaking up. He is preaching. If you have your bulletin, I want you to notice the outline on the back. I want to go ahead and give you the first main point. This is kind of the theme of the message this morning. It's this. Our mission is connected to a message. This is where it's very foundational for us. Because we're talking about this mission that God has given us. But what we have to understand is this mission that God has given us is connected to a message. And so if we try to pursue the mission while ignoring the message, we will fail. I mean, if we say we want to do what God has called us to do, and we, we use the term mission, but yet we fail to understand that there is a message attached to that mission, then we're going to be going and doing all these things, but it's ultimately not going to have that great of an impact. Our mission is connected to a message. And in Peter's sermon that he preaches here, starting in verse 14, we learn a lot about what that message is. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. If you're taking notes, let me give you our first point this morning. Our message is rooted in Scripture. Our message is rooted in Scripture. I want you to notice, we're not going to read all of this right now, but just kind of browse through. I want you to notice all the times that Peter quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 17 through verse 21, Peter is quoting and referring to Joel chapter 2. In verse 25 through verse 31, he is quoting from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. In verse 34 through 35, Peter is quoting from Psalm 110. 
Why? I mean, why would Peter stand up, proclaim truth to these people, and then spend so much time quoting Scripture? Well, I think he probably understood that in and of himself, he had nothing to say. I mean, the message that we are called to communicate must be rooted in God's Word. Listen, hopefully you're here this morning not just to hear what I say. Hopefully you're not here this morning to hear what I say. But hopefully you're here this morning to hear what God says. And if I am doing my job, I will be communicating the word of God. And if I ever spend more time communicating my thoughts than I do God's thoughts, then I am failing you. The truth, the power, the message that we need is this. That's the reason we, we root our ministry in this. We should root our families in this, root our lives in this. Peter gave us this example that our mission that God has given us is connected to a message and that message is found in scripture. So guess what? In the pursuit of fulfilling the mission God has given us, we cannot ignore God's word. In fact, the reason why we're going through this series is God's word guides us to do what he has called us to do. Number two, our message is centered on Christ. Our message is centered on Christ. Starting in verse 22, just kind of browse through this with me. I want you to notice all of the times that Jesus is mentioned or a pronoun referring to Jesus is mentioned. Verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene. Again, verse 22, through him. Verse 23, though he was delivered. Verse 20, again, 23, nailed him to a cross, killed him, referring to Christ. Verse 24, again, him, him, referring to Christ. Down at verse 31, you have the Messiah. Verse 32, God has resurrected this Jesus. 33, he, 30, you get the point? I mean, you see it again, verse 36, verse 38, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 13, 14 times through those few verses, you find Jesus. Christ is being stressed. Christ is being highlighted. The focus of Peter's sermon is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Here's what this means for us. If Jesus is the focus of the message and we are committed to the message and the message is the center of our mission, then if we are going to accomplish the mission God has given us, we have to focus on Jesus. You will never accomplish the mission of God If you are afraid to talk about Jesus. I know that's blunt. But if you are, if you're here this morning and last week, many of you stood up and you say, you know what? I want to, I want to help our church accomplish the mission. We will never accomplish the mission without talking about Jesus because he is at the center of the mission. And it does not make sense for us to go to people and tell them they need Jesus and then live lives as though Jesus is unimportant and not needed in our own lives. If your life is about the mission, your life is also about Jesus because he is at the center of it. And if you say, I want to accomplish this mission, but I care nothing about talking about Jesus, then you are really not overly committed to the mission. The message is focused on Jesus. The mission is focused on Jesus. Because what people need more than anything else is Jesus. It is also worth stating that Jesus will never be the center of your mission until Jesus is the center of your life. Does that make sense? I mean, if you say we believe the mission and we know the mission is connected to a message and this message is centered on Christ, this mission is centered on Christ... Our lives will never fulfill the mission God has given us if we are not willing to make Jesus the center of our lives. 
I mean, if the only time you talk about Christ and sing about Christ and mention Christ is on Sunday morning, then your life is not focused on the mission. So let me ask you, how focused, how centered on Christ is your life today? You say, how do I know? How much have you spent time with Jesus and talked about Jesus this past week? If you're looking back over the past week and you say, you know what? I never spent time in prayer. I never read his word. I never shared my faith. Never talked about Jesus with anyone. Never talked about what Jesus is doing in my life. I mean, if you look back and you've ignored Jesus, I hate to break it to you, but you are not on mission. You're not. I went to have coffee Thursday morning with uh, a guy, and he's passionate about Christ. Here's what he told me. He said, I have determined to share my faith at least once every day, and I've been doing that now for eight years. This is a 30-year-old who started when he was 22 to say, you know what? I want my life to be focused on Christ. Why? Because I want to fulfill and accomplish the mission. And what would happen if we had 300 people in our church all committed to living on mission, living a life where Christ is at the center, living a life where we are communicating Christ each and every day? You know why churches don't have more impact? It's because the people in the church ignore Jesus. Right? Let's just be honest. Let's not try to paint the tomb that's a reference to Matthew 7, where, you remember Matthew 7, he's talking to the scribes, Pharisee, hypocrites, he tells them, say what? You got it? Are we all on the same page? How about the balcony? Y'all all right up there? All right. Here's the point. Christ is central to the message we've been called to communicate. And if we say that we want to accomplish the mission, we have to focus on Christ. If we think that we can live the Christian life without focusing on Jesus, then we're mistaken. Let me give you number three. Our message communicates the gospel. Look at verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him. Just as you yourselves know. He says, you've seen these things. Verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. He's saying that God was in control of this all along. You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You go down to verse 32. You see that God has resurrected this Jesus. See, at the center of this message is the gospel. You say, what is the gospel? In a nutshell, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the center of the mission is the gospel of Christ. See, in our pursuit of this mission, in our pursuit, in our desire to do what God has called us to do, we have to understand we have to communicate the gospel. It's not just about ministering to felt needs or what people think they need. We have to understand as many physical needs as people have. And as much as the Bible calls us to minister to those physical needs, we dare not neglect the spiritual need. And the one thing that brings hope to broken people is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason we are here this morning is because of the resurrection of Christ. That is not just something we celebrate on Easter. 
Every Sunday morning we celebrate the fact that Christ is risen and because he is risen, you and I have new life that survives the grave. It is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we do when we go out and we live on mission? And as a church, we pursue our mission. We communicate the gospel. Let me give you number four. Our message requires boldness. I, f- I find this interesting. What is Peter known for? Well, I mean, what did he do when... Christ was being betrayed and on the way to the cross. Y'all remember? He denied Christ, right? Once, three times, right? So this is what's interesting. Peter is now standing up. And notice verse, um, notice verse 23. He stands up in this crowd of Jews. You see how many people were there? Well, we know in a few minutes that 3,000 believed. And there's others who mock. So we know there's a ton of people here. Here's what he does. Though he was delivered according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you... Talking to the crowd, use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You know what he's doing? He's standing up and saying, you're guilty. You're the reason Christ is dead. You nailed him to a cross. Yes, God was in control and this was God's plan. But you lawless people is what Peter is saying. You nailed him to a cross. You are guilty. You are the ones responsible for the crucifixion, for the death of Jesus Christ. That's bold. I mean, what would have happened if the crowd would have turned on him? They would have crucified him, yeah. This boldness, though, is central to the mission. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives the mission. In verse 10 and 11 of chapter 1, they see Jesus ascended into heaven. They're reminded that Christ is coming back again. In verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1, they are gathered together praying for, for God to give them the power to pursue this mission. And then the very first thing we see Peter doing, it requires boldness. The mission that God has given us requires boldness. One of those things that's closely connected to boldness is that willingness to step out in faith. That willingness to take that initial step and say, I know this doesn't make sense, but God, I believe you're calling me to do this. God, I know this doesn't make sense, but God, we believe this is what you have called our church to do. It takes that step of faith. How many of you dads... Whenever your kids were little, you'd stand, stand them up on something and ask them to jump to you. How many of you moms ever did that? Oh, a couple. Wow. Good for you. I, I told uh, the early service this. My, I don't know if it's my personality or just who, how I am. If, if I get ready to do something like that and I see that, that they're, they're, they're scared, they don't want to do it, I think they need to do it more. And early service, all the dads were nodding, the moms were just kind of, what are you talking about? Um, but when you're, whenever you do that, whether they're jumping in the pool or off a counter or off a step, something like that, after they do it the first time, what do they now know? That you, that they can trust you, right? That you're there. You know, oftentimes when we are not used to being bold and we are not used to stepping out in faith, it is that initial first time that's tough. That it's that initial first time to to jump off the ledge. But once we take that step of faith and we have that boldness, you know what we learn? God's there. God is there. And some of you, you've been living a safe Christian life. I watched a video this past week by Francis Chan. Have you ever heard of Francis Chan? A few of you have. 
Well, he, he did this illustration and he had this balance beam up on the platform. If I know where to get a balance beam to borrow, I would have had one up here to show this because I think it's a powerful picture. But I want you to use your imagination. Imagine that there's this balance beam up here. So he stood up on the balance beam, this little four-inch block wood. He, he stands up on it, and he's saying, this is how we begin the Christian life. We stand up on this, and we're confident, and we're comfortable. But then all of a sudden, things happen, and it starts to get a little bit shaky, right? I mean, tragedy comes in. There's loss. There's sickness. There's death. There's trouble. There's all these things happen. It starts to get a little bit shaky. And so what we do, instead of truly trusting God, what we do is... It was we get down on this balance beam. What he did, he sat down on it and then leaned over and wrapped his arms around it and wrapped his legs around it and just clung to it. He said, and, and, and our steps of faith stop and our boldness stops. And he says, then one day we're going to pass away and we're going to stand before God. And what so many people do is they've lived their life on this balance beam, clinging to it, hugging it, holding to it. And then when it's time for the, the judge to give the scores, they jump off of the balance beam. And if you ever watched the gymnastics, you know how they stand up and they do their thing. That was probably not a good impersonation of that, but y'all get the point. They do their, they do their thing and they look at the judge, they smile and they walk off. Now, if you're to watch the Olympics, the next time the Olympics come along and the person got up on the balance beam and they sat down, they leaned over and laid on it and hugged it with their arms and legs until the 90 seconds was up, then let go and jumped off and did this. What do you think the judge would do? Why do we think it's okay to live the Christian life like that? I mean, why do we think that in the Christian life we can simply have this safe, comfortable life where we don't want any challenges and we don't want to take any risks and we don't want to step out in faith for God and we don't want to do anything dangerous, but we, we just lay down on the balance beam and we cling to it till the program's over and then we stand up and we stand before the God of the universe who has given us a mission, who has challenged us, who has said, this is what your life is to be about. And we stand up before the judge of the universe and we smile and we are expecting all these great scores. We want God to look at us then and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, is he really going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to someone who's laid and clung to the balance beam? Or is that well done, good and faithful servant reserved for those who have taken those steps of faith? We've got to be bold. We've got to be courageous. We've got to be, in a way... Per- in a way, we've got to live in such a way that we take risks for God. That we take steps of faith for God. We think about missionaries who go to these dangerous areas. I, mean, I think about Jim Elliott and the group that went to the Alka Indians in Ecuador. And they took risks and they were bold and they suffered consequences. But because of that, thousands of people came to faith in Christ. Listen, greatness in churches does not happen accidentally. We can never say, you know what, I want Highland, Highland Park Baptist Church to be great, but then sit back and cling to the balance beam. That is not greatness. Greatness in churches and greatness in lives always happens when people are willing to take that step of faith. And some of you, you've been living a safe Christian life. And you're saying, you know what, maybe today what God is saying to you, what God may be saying to some of us today, is that we need to be willing to take that step. Get... Right now, you're clinging to the balance beam. You know what would be a wonderful result of the service this morning? If if a number of you would say, you know what, enough clinging to the balance beam. I'm going to stand up. And I'm going to take a step of faith. And I'm going to be bold. And I'm going to be courageous. And I want to accomplish something great for God. Because it will not happen unless you are intentional and deliberate about being bold. A mission will never be accomplished apart from boldness. 
as a church, if we just want to, if we just want to be safe and we just want to lay on the balance beam and hold to it, we will never accomplish the mission God has given us. It requires boldness. And some of you this morning, you need to determine, I will live by faith. I will take those steps of boldness. Let me give you number five. The message we proclaim requires a response. It demands a response. Look at verse 38. In, in verse 38, we see this, this response that we are asking people for. Verse 38, repent. Actually, go back up to verse 37. These people are hearing this message, and they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Verse 38, repent, Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Understand something. This message we are communicating, this mission that we are committed to, is not just something we do so that we feel better about ourselves. It is, it is a message and it is a mission that, that requires a response. We want people to respond. You say, what is the response? The first response that we call people to is repentance. It is that, that response of giving their life to God, turning their back on their sin, accepting Christ's sacrifice, accepting the gospel, making Jesus Lord of their life. We want people to, to repent. And so on this mission, as we are pursuing this mission as a church, we are pleading with people, not just saying, hey, you want to repent? We are pleading with people to repent. Why? Because we understand that their soul hangs in the balance for all eternity. There is coming a time when this life will end. And what people have done with Christ is the only thing that will matter. And so we beg and we plead with people to give their life to Christ. And then those who do give their life to Christ... The response then following the repentance is that public proclamation. The, the person saying, I have given my life to Christ and I want everyone to know about it. You see, it's, it's phrased by, well, just look at verse 38 again. Repent and be, and be what? Baptized. This baptism is a public proclamation of what Christ has done in your heart and done in your life. It's a, Kind of a great spot to emphasize the fact that this is believer's baptism. You say, who, who do we baptize as a church? We baptize people who have given their life to Christ. We don't baptize infants. We don't baptize someone who just wants to be a part of the church. Baptism is a public proclamation saying, this is what Christ has done in me and for me. And I want everyone to know. The gospel demands both responses. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. In fact, this is one of those verses that some people will try to use to say baptism is necessary for salvation. Some people will look at this and say, well, it says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And they say, well, you've got to be baptized to have the forgiveness of sins. Anybody ever heard anybody use this verse for that purpose? A few of you have. The key is the word for. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus for. That word for means because of or on the basis of. So we repent and then we are baptized because we have experienced the forgiveness of sins. See, some of you, maybe, I don't know, but some of you, maybe you've repented, but you've never proclaimed that publicly through baptism. You've repented of your sins. You've made Jesus Lord of your life. And you need to understand this morning that baptism is not presented as an option for the believer. It is presented as the first step of obedience for the believer. It is saying, I, I want everyone to know what Christ has done in me. It is part of our testimony. Let me give you number six. And we'll wrap up. Number six. Our message elicits different reactions. 
And we know this, but we've got to be reminded of it. So as we communicate this message and as we pursue this mission, understand people will respond, react in different ways. Look at verse 12. This is the first reaction. Verse 12, Acts 2, verse 12. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this be? As we communicate this message and we pursue this mission, there will be some people who are curious, confused, and ask questions. Verse 13, notice the next response. But some sneered or mocked, laughed, and said they are full of new wine. Some people looked at them and said, you know what, they're drunk. They're crazy. They're not acting right. So why would we continue to communicate a message and pursue the fulfillment of a mission if two of the responses so far are that people are just simply going to question and be curious and other people are going to mock and laugh at us and ridicule us? Why do we keep going? Well, it's because of verse 41. Look at verse 41. And so those who accepted the message, those who believed, were baptized. Again, you see the order. They believed and then they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. There were initially 120 followers of Christ. Now, this is the, this is the, the, the foundation of the church. 3,000 people were added. I mean, what would it like to have an event and proclaim the gospel and for us to see 3,000 people saved and baptized in one day? You're like, that'll never happen. Why not? Why not? See, when there's boldness and when there's steps of faith and when there's courage and when the gospel is proclaimed and Christ is proclaimed, God does amazing things through that. I want to give you your last kind of summary point this morning that will tie everything together. Do not miss this. We cannot pursue the mission while minimizing the message. So last week in both of our services, I would say we had... One, 200 people stand up and say, you know, what? I want to help our church be committed to the mission. And some of you did that last week. You know what you have to do now? If you're truly serious about the mission that God has given us, you cannot minimize or ignore the message of Christ. See what many times, and this is why I started with those illustrations at the beginning, Talking about the, under, defining our terms. Some people will try to stand up and say, let's pursue the mission God has given us. But in pursuing the mission, they never talk about the message. They never present Christ. They never present the gospel. They never call people to repent. Listen, that is not the mission. Good things may be accomplished, but Christ is not at the center. If you and I are truly serious about the mission that God has given us in his word, then what we have to do is say yes to the mission and then focus on the message. And your life will never accomplish the mission that God has given it, given you if your life first is not centered on Christ. So here's what I want to ask you to do. We're not going to ask everybody to stand and come forward like we did last week. Don't worry. Even though I think that would kind of be great. I kind of enjoyed that. I thought it was really good. But there are some of you this morning who need to say, you know what? I have been clinging to the balance beam. And God is calling me to stand up and be bold. Others of you, you, you said last week you want to see the mission fulfilled, but in your own life, Christ isn't at the center of your life. The gospel is not the center of your life. And so what some of you need to do this morning is you need to commit 
to making Jesus your focus. I mean, if we're serious about the mission, we, we have to focus on the message. If we're serious about the mission, we cannot minimize the message. We cannot minimize Christ. And so as we move forward as a church, what we're going to begin seeing in the remaining chapters of the book of Acts is as we pursue this mission, the Bible is going to realign us. It's going to realign our lives. It's going to realign our families. It's going to realign our church. You know, just because you go and get the tires, you get your car aligned once, does it stay like that forever? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? As a church, what this study is going to do is say, you know what? If we're about the mission, then we have to be about the message. Not just corporately, but individually. And some of you this morning need to make that commitment. We stand with me. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.